Hello and welcome to the Grattan podcast channel. I'm Paul Austin, the editor at Grattan Institute. And today we're talking about perhaps the biggest story in the world this year, the coronavirus. In particular, we're looking at what the virus has already meant for Australia and what more it may mean for Australia in future if it is not controlled and eventually, hopefully, eliminated. To discuss these issues, I'm joined by Grattan CEO John Daly. Hello, John. Hello. And John and I are also joined by Grattan Associate Will Mackey. Will, welcome to you. G'day, Paul. John and Will have just published an article on the impact of coronavirus on Australia's universities. You can read that on our website and I'll come to it soon. But first, John, we're talking in late February. What's your assessment right now about whether we may have seen the worst of the coronavirus already or, more ominously, whether the worst may be yet to come? The short answer is it's hard to tell, and this is something which I think is genuinely changing day to day. Uh, I think a week ago it looked as though uh, things were largely under control, cases were falling in Hubei, cases were falling in the rest of China. Outside of China, really most of the people who were getting sick were on cruise ships, uh, which was pretty bad if you were on a cruise ship, but inherently um, cruise ships are quite easy places to quarantine. And so I think in a sense, some people were starting to think that maybe this was sort of under control. As of today, Monday, um, uh, we're seeing a growing number of cases in Italy. We're seeing a growing number of cases in uh, Iran. There's extreme nervousness that there is nothing like enough testing in Indonesia. Uh, and consequently, it may well be out and about in Indonesia. Um, and the thing that we are starting to learn about the coronavirus in terms of assessing any of these epidemics, there's two things that you care about. One is how infectious is it? And the other is how, how dangerous is it? What's the mortality rate? So in terms of how infectious is it, um, inevitably with these things, it's hard to tell until you've got um, a bit more data than we've seen. But it looks as though the short answer is it's pretty infectious. Um, uh, looks as though the typical person infects at least two other people, quite possibly north of that, particularly in a, in a country if you haven't shut everything down, as has largely happened uh, in China. Uh, and any epidemic where one person typically infects two others uncontrolled will get very nasty very quickly. Um, uh, these things sort of start slow, the first couple of weeks, nothing big, and then after a month or two, it really gets very big, very fast. The second thing we care about is uh, mortality rates. Um, although this virus appears to be a lot more infectious than SARS, it appears to be a little less dangerous in terms of um, uh, the mortality rates. Mortality rates um, in the rest of China uh, and in the rest of the world appear to be running at under 1%. So roughly speaking, one in 100 people who get infected um, might die. Um, I mean, that's not great, but uh, by the standards of an epidemic, um, it's uh, not as bad as it could be. It's worth remembering the Black Death killed something like one in two, one in three people who got infected. That's a really, that is what a really horrible epidemic looks like. Also worth remembering an epidemic like that can set back a... Um, a continent mm. several 
by hundreds of years. And a civilization. Um, yeah. yeah. So um, this one, maybe around one in a hundred, a um, bit less. That is assuming that you have a functioning hospital system. And one of the nasty things about this is that if you really have a virus with an infection rate that really got out um, uh, well north of two, um, uh, then it rapidly gets to the point where there's just nothing like enough hospital beds to go around. There's a limit to the speed at which you can build hospital beds. You run out of doctors and nurses and all those kinds of things, which is roughly speaking what's happened in Hubei. So people have essentially in Hubei been told to stay at home, even if they are sick, because there's essentially no hospital bed for them to go to. And there it looks as though death rates are running at more like about 1 in 20, 1 in 10 somewhere between about 5 and 10%, which is obviously a great deal more serious. So the big concern I think that authorities have got is that if it really gets out, no matter where it is, um, uh, the, the capacity for it to overwhelm the health system and then to have really quite substantial death rates is very high. So that's why authorities are treating this very seriously uh, and uh, working as hard as they can to contain it. And is it possible for us at this distance to get a feel for whether the Chinese authorities have responded adequately, quickly enough in seeking to contain the virus to China? So it looks as though the Chinese authorities were perhaps a little slow off the mark in Hubei. Uh, and up until around about very late January, early February, um, probably not enough was being done. Uh, we're all geniuses in hindsight. Um, after that date, so since the beginning of February, uh, both in Hubei and in the rest of China, very significant um, uh, constraints have been put in place. So for the whole of China, coal production, sorry, use of coal for power, um, so in power plants, has dropped by about half. Congestion rates are down in most of the major cities to almost nothing, very good time to be getting around um, China um, if you want to. Um, uh, property transactions, uh, which are of course a very good proxy for everything else in commercial life, are currently running at about 10% of normal levels. So they really do look as though they've shut down the country. Of course, the short term economic cost of that will be quite substantial. Assuming that they really control the virus, the long-term costs will be pretty small because inherently you're not destroying infrastructure, you're not, assuming you really get it under control, you're not destroying a lot of human capital. Um, so chances are if they really do contain it, China will bounce back. Mm -hmm. And we're also seeing that in the numbers. Um, you know, like all statistics, um, they're not completely pure, but it certainly looks as though the number of cases, new cases per day in both Dubai and the rest of China is falling and falling reasonably rapidly. And that gives you some confidence that this thing is under control, bearing in mind two things. One is they have very substantially shut down the country in order to do so economically. Uh, and secondly, um, China is one of the few countries in the world that has a regime that is both pretty organised uh, and with very comprehensive control. It's, it's, you know, a very advanced regime in that sense and also sufficiently autocratic that it can tell people you are going to shut down your factory right now. So uh, whether the rest of the world can impose those kinds of public health quarantine measures, time will tell. 
Um, it looks like that's the kind of thing you have to do to slow this disease down once it's got out into the general population. Um, it looks as though it'll probably be okay in China, whether it's going to be okay in places like Italy and um, Iran and Indonesia, who knows? We'll see. And of course, the nervousness is that if it really gets out in those places and really gets ahead of steam, then it will be very hard to stop it spreading from those countries to others. Uh, and, and once you have masses of infection, this will be a very hard thing to stop. And I have a billion dollar question for you, John, possibly literally billion dollar question. What prospects for a vaccine realistically, when might the world hope for a vaccine? Uh, so there's reports today that a vaccine candidate has been identified. I and mean, the bottom line is that immunology is a much more sophisticated science than it was 30 years ago. Um, so that's the good news. The bad news is that before a vaccine is useful, um, firstly, you have to test it on a reasonable number of people to ensure that, one, it does stop them getting infected, and two, it doesn't kill them um, or otherwise have significant health effects. So that takes you a little while. And then secondly, you have to mass produce it. And, and you cannot just sort of turn on a tap from a good vaccine candidate on Monday and expect that you're going to have even millions, let alone hundreds of millions, let alone billions of doses by Friday. It doesn't work like that. The scale up is months and months and months and months. So even if we've got a really good vaccine candidate today, query, as I said, you know, this is a fast moving area, chances are we will not have a vaccine that can be broadly distributed, better part of at least 12 months, probably more like 18. Um, so uh, you are not going to be able to rely on a vaccine to uh, essentially eliminate this disease in a hurry. Uh, and that's why countries are resorting to very old-fashioned quarantine methods that basically stop people communicating the disease to each other, even despite the very substantial costs that that imposes. Okay, and the race for a, as the race for a vaccine continues, can I ask you this, John, what do you make of the apparent differences between the Chief Health Officer here in Victoria and Australia's Chief Health Officer? It seems to me the Victorian Chief Health Officer is now suggesting that a world pandemic is almost inevitable and the National Chief Health Officer seems to be perhaps somewhat more optimistic? Well, as they say about predictions, the, the problem is that they're about the future. Uh, so we don't know. Uh, I think what that illustrates is that um, uh, clever people who do this for a living uh, and who know what they're talking about, um, with roughly speaking the same very detailed information, can nevertheless come to different conclusions about where we are and what is the appropriate response as of today. Um, I think it's one of those things where my guess is that those two people will probably agree on what should be done at some stage in the next month at the point that they both have substantially more information. So as I said earlier on, we are slightly guessing about how this one is going to play out. We know some things, but we don't know enough. Um, we are, and amongst other things, we're guessing about exactly how well are various other countries going to respond to this, exactly what measures will they put in place, how effective will those measures be. 
That's very hard to see in advance, and essentially that's what we are debating about. Now, what does all this mean for Australia? I'll come to higher education soon, but first, John, what damage is being done more generally to the global economy and to the Australian economy? Well, um, as you would expect from that, uh, those changes to the economy of China, in the short term, we're seeing quite significant impacts. So we're seeing significant reductions in the use of coal for energy purposes. That's something that's important to Australia, but it's not a very big deal. Um, without doubt, over time, we will start to see material reductions in the use of steel, um, so therefore of iron ore and of, of metallurgical coal. That is much more of a big deal for Australia. That's, you know, a lot of our exports look like that. Um, we're also seeing disruptions in supply chains. So things that, you know, manufactured in China, it's starting to get harder to get to them and find them, expect the price to go up. That's what happens um, when uh, supply dries up. Uh, so uh, we probably will see some consumer price inflation uh, in the relatively short term. If this disease is contained, all of those effects will be pretty, pretty short term. Uh, if this disease is contained, then one would expect that Chinese iron ore consumption in 12 months' time will be, you know, a little bit more than it was 12 months ago, in which case all is um, uh, pretty happy for Australian iron ore producers and the same is true for lots of other industries. Uh, if this thing becomes a global pandemic and we see very rapid rises in infection rates in lots of other countries, chances are that will be very disruptive for trade in general. Um, I think the worst case is one in which we see a very disrupted global economy for the better part of 18 months. That'll be pretty bad for 18 months. But again, you need to distinguish between are we destroying long-term capability or are we destroying short-term capability? And, and the nature of a disease that's got a, a death rate of about you know one in 100 and of those um, very disproportionately, they are older people, which is you know not uncommon. It's not always the case, but it certainly appears to be the case for this disease. Um, the impacts on the economy more generally will be you know, noticeable. You know, be able to find them in the statistics in in two years' time, but they're not going to be huge. Um, uh, even in the worst case, um, it's not like we're going to sort of regress into the Middle Ages. Uh, but on the other hand, it'll be a pretty substantial hit to the global economy um, uh, if it really becomes a global pandemic. Uh, and then even if it doesn't become a global pandemic, of course, we've got to look at the short run to medium run impacts on the Australian higher education uh, industry. Okay. So, Will, you've looked particularly closely at Australia's universities and the impact of coronavirus. Tell me what you've discovered. Uh, thanks very much, Paul. The Australian higher education industry is the the Australian higher education industry for international students is enormous. It's, Australia takes in about thirty two billion dollars from international students every year, according to the ABS. About fourteen billion dollars of that is in fees, and nineteen billion is in goods and services. The, so the spending of international students while they're here. Uh, we've got about five hundred international five hundred thousand international students in. Australia uh, last year, about 160,000 of those students were from China. Uh, they contribute about 11 billion. So of that 32 billion, a third are from students from China, which is really it's a large proportion. The next biggest is India with 4 billion, 
you know, in terms of their contribution. And universities are exposed differently at different different rates. Some have a higher concentration of Chinese international students than others. So I think you've been able to break that down. Which which of the main universities are the most exposed? Uh, so the big sandstone universities are the most exposed. The, the largest is Sydney University. Um, and to give you some context, so they took in in 2017, which is the last, uh, last year the Department of Education makes this data available, um, they took in $600 million in student fees from domestic students. Uh, that same year, they took in $750 million from international students. And of that, $500 million was from students from China. Um, it's an enormous impact. So what's the state of play right now with international students who would normally be uh, beginning their university year in Australia? So Universities Australia, the, um, the university body, has estimated that about 100,000 students um, that would, would, have, would have been starting their year in Australia stuck in China at the moment. Um, they won't be able to enter Australia as long as the travel ban continues unless they go to a, go to a third country for 14 days. Um, the department, uh, sorry, the Australian government is looking to maybe uh, uh, put in some exceptions for these students. They've done that this week with uh, students, uh, year, year 11 and year 12 students from China who can kind of fill out a, a 13 step plan and gain access to Australia. And the government has said that maybe next week they'll extend that to university students, still unsure at the moment. So on what basis is there a distinction that the Australian government draws between a would-be international student from China who's in year 11 and 12 compared to a would-be international student from China who's wanting to come to university in Australia? Uh, they're enrolled. They're enrolled. Enrolled in different uh, in in different systems. Um, the the school's enrollment is a state based system, and uh, so the states themselves can decide whether or not they want to allow more. Uh, well, they want to allow um, uh, students from China back in. The uh, um, the university system is kind of more on the Commonwealth side, uh, and yeah, the Australian government hasn't hasn't made that decision yet. Yep. There's also, Will, a thing called the internet these days. Surely the, surely the Chinese students wanting to come to Australia can do their courses just as well uh, online. Isn't that uh, an option for overcoming this hurdle? So it certainly is an option. With, with universities that, have been, that are so exposed to the Chinese student markers, uh, they have... Uh, they've put in um, put in place kind of different options for Chinese students. Monash University, for example, has delayed the the start of their semester uh, this uh, um, this year by a week. Um, they've also made all first semester uh, sorry first week courses strictly online. Um, Sydney University has made a lot of their courses online as well. In fact, most universities are, are making exceptions for students affected by the travel ban uh, that they can study online, whether or not that uh, uh, Chinese students will, will take that up is a different question. Um, part of the very, well, you know, reasonably expensive fee to study in Australia is that you get to study in Australia and you get to be in an Australian city, an Australian campus, um, and you just don't get that with uh, online study. So, Will, what might all this mean for teaching jobs at university and for research funding at Australian universities? Well, it's, it's bad news for both of those things. Uh, well, especially for casual teachers and for research at universities. 
casual teachers make up about uh, about a quarter of the full-time full-time equivalent teaching staff at universities and they can kind of be cut very very quickly very easily this will be a way that universities can save money if there aren't students there to teach or to tutor then they can cut those tutors um but you know it's bad news for the the academics or, or the the um the phd students who are who are doing those tutoring courses um the research uh we, we, we previous grad research has found that um, about 20 percent of university research is funded by uh, you know, additional revenue from student fees um, because for universities that have such a large dependence on Chinese students for their uh, for their student fees, that is of course going to have an impact uh, on on the amount of money they can spend on research. And this is bad news for Australian universities at a bad time for Australian universities, isn't it? It is a bad time for Australian universities. Um, while. A, a global pandemic has shut down a lot of their, their access to the international student market. It's the Commonwealth government that's shut down access uh, to the domestic student market by ending the demand-driven uh, demand driven system in 2017, capping domestic student places at 2017 levels. Uh, this wasn't that big of a deal for the last couple of years, as there's been a, just a, by chance, a demographic slump, um, but there'll be more and more uh, domestic Australian students finishing year 12 next year and the year after and in uh, to the 2020s that will want to be going to university and universities will want to take them in and they won't be able to. Mm. I think I think one of the things here is is to think through whether this is a short run or a long run hit to Australian universities. So there's no question it's going to do at least as badly as iron ore uh, in terms of a short run hit to revenue. The question is whether or not um, that's a, a hit to revenue that persists. Um, so chances are in the medium term it will have more of an impact than, say, the hit to iron ore because there'll be, of the group of students that were supposed to start in January 2012, more accurately, Mar February, March 2020, uh, a number of them will decide that they're not very interested in doing it online, that they might as well just start second semester and cut their losses or start in um, second semester or, or more accurately in July, August and cut their losses. And then some of them will say, well, if I'm going to start in July, August, I might as well start in the UK or in Canada. And if I was running a university in UK or Canada, I'd be busy marketing to those students. And so I dare say they are. Uh, so that is the kind of medium term danger to Australia's universities that you effectively get a whole cohort of students that gets you know, materially taken by um, uh, particularly UK and Canadian universities and consequently that's a smaller cohort, not just in um, February, March 2020, but it's a smaller cohort that then goes through the system over two or three years, which means that numbers are down for a while. Um, so that is certainly one of the concerns and that's even before we get to the really long-term impact, which will be well, is this going to be a much more general epidemic? And even if it's not, what will be the long-term impact on Australia's reputation as a higher education provider? Those are the really long-term risks. I think they're more speculative, but um, I think this is an industry where we're looking at uh, the, the high probability of a medium-term impact because of the way that this will impact the pipeline of of students. Um, in effect, we will have fewer second year students next year. Uh, and that means that revenues will continue to be down on where they would have been otherwise. 
bearing in mind, of course, that um, Australian um, uh, university revenues from foreign students have been rising pretty fast, um, you know, at the order of um, 15% a year. So uh, no doubt Australian universities would be very disappointed that they don't get another 15%, but um, it does illustrate that it's an industry that could easily bounce back pretty quickly. Nonetheless, John, you and Will have raised the prospect or indeed uh, advocated for a lifting or an ending of this freeze on demand-driven funding for university places. Just remind me why the freeze was imposed and what is the case for ending that freeze now? So in essence, the freeze was imposed because the Senate refused to pass the government's other changes that uh, would have meant that they essentially collected more revenue from domestic students. So there's a trade-off. Uh, they were proposing, well, we'll allow there to be more domestic students, provided that we can collect more from ones who do show up. Uh, the Senate rejected that trade-off and basically said, no, no, um, we're not going to let you collect more from the students. And the government responded by saying, well, we've got a budgetary problem here and we'll deal with that budgetary problem by capping things. Now, um, we have seen participation in Australian tertiary education go up by a lot. Uh, you know, one would expect that that would lead to the economy being more productive than otherwise over the medium to long run. Uh, the cap, as Will was saying, hasn't really hurt that much for the last year or two because the system had already grown a lot. The number of students leaving school and therefore wanting to go to university is effectively plateaued over the last two to three years just because that's the way the demographic numbers happen to come out. You know, there basically weren't that many people being born um, 16, 17 years ago. Uh, the catch is that that, demogra that demography reverses um, starting in about 22, 23 and then running through to 2030. We see quite a big increase in the number of school leavers and therefore a big increase in the number of people who want to go to university and therefore, um, if we want to maintain the same proportion of school leavers going to university, we'll need to see a material increase in the number of places, particularly in two or three years' time. Uh, but as Will was saying, in the short run, lifting that cap might help Australian universities because they might find there's some more domestic students who would be interested. That is not going to fill the gap with international students. Uh, essentially, international students typically pay materially higher fees than the universities collect both from students and from the Commonwealth Government when they teach a domestic student. Uh, so whereas it looks as though they more or less break even on a domestic student, they make a substantial surplus typically on an international student. That surplus that is available to essentially pay for additional research that would not be done otherwise. So the short run impact, as Will was saying, and short to medium run impact is there's going to be less money around, floating around for teaching and less money floating around for research. Uh, and precisely because the tertiary education sector has a lot of people who are casual employees, if you're running a university, that would be the first thing that you look to cut. Uh, and indeed, we've already seen a university um, peers uh, indicate that it will be cutting its casual staff in the next um, semester in response to the fact that if their revenues write down, well, you know, you have to look at the cost line. But presumably lifting the freeze on the funding of uh, on, on domestic students will have an impact on the budgetary position of the Commonwealth. Uh, absolutely. It will cost the budget money. Uh, and, of course, that's in a world in which the Commonwealth budget has already been materially affected by the fires and one would expect 
even more materially affected by coronavirus. So, um, uh, yes, that is no doubt something they will be thinking of. There's also the reverse side, which is if you get a short, sharp economic shock like this, actually you would expect your budget to go into deficit and you would expect your government to deliberately spend more money so that you don't wind up with a whole bunch of people unemployed, including people who are currently casual teachers uh, in academia, uh, because history tells us that when a substantial number of people get unemployed like that, often they don't come back. Uh, and so you can have a permanent hit to your economy, which is the thing you're trying to avoid in an economic situation like this. Thank you, John. Thank you, Will, for your um, your insights and your expertise today. And thank you to you, our listeners. If you would like to read John and Will's article on coronavirus or indeed any of Grattan's reports and articles on health, higher education and a whole lot more besides, go to our website, grattan.edu.au. It's all there, live and free. You can start to date with all of Grattan's news and events by following us on Twitter at GrattanInst or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And if you found this podcast valuable, then please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes or Spotify and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening.